Don't answer that. I know Andy's here, but the idea is this. You don't want to see that. You don't want to see that. I've enjoyed my time with you, but those of you who I've had the privilege of spending some time with, you know uh, that I, uh, I enjoy what I do. And uh, my intent is that in a delivery of the Lord's, of the Lord's Word, of, of God's Word, of this particular lesson and any others that I would ever deliver, that you would understand that what we do today is not laborious. Uh, you'll hear me say this again in our worship hour. Uh, I want individuals who attend the Lord's church to want to be here. I don't want it to be about I have to be here. As a matter of fact, I will offer this to you. God's never been interested in have to worship. He's been interested in get to worship. Do you know the difference between the two? Sometimes my children will attend a seminar during the weekend and maybe I'll start a, a gospel meeting on Sunday and it'll go Sunday through Wednesday. It might surprise you from time to time that even my children in the past have made this statement, do we have to go tonight? Now I know you've never heard that asked, but in my house it has been said. My default answer, which they now know is this, no, you don't have to go. You get to go. Now get in the car. Because there's a difference between have to and get to. You get to be here today. You get to study God's Word. I pray that that is something that you personalize because what we do here today, it really is significant. Do you know there's a growing sentiment in the world that what we do on Sundays as we gather together as the church, that it has zero relevance in the lives of people. It's very sad to study a cultural change uh, that has taken place over the last 15 to 20 years. But the reality is that there are, are a number of individuals that would view what we do today as, as meaningless. And I would offer something to you. I, I can't point it at them and say, well, it's your fault that you believe that it's meaningless. And you say, yes, you can, because obviously they're the ones who have reached that conclusion. And I would offer this to you. When you find out why they've reached that conclusion, what you find out is this, because we've observed God's children and God's own children say that it's only something they do on Sundays and then on Mondays and Tuesdays and, and Wednesdays, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we all act and do the same things anyway. So why should I care about what you do on Sunday? I don't care if you go to church on Sunday. As long as that doesn't make any difference in the way you interact with me during the week. And you look at that and you'd say, whoa, wait, are you saying then that it's possible that God's people don't take this serious enough and that's why the world is changing its view of organized religion? Uh, possibly, that may be why they use the phrase organized religion. Kind of like during COVID, when individuals were told that we had the stay-at-home orders or whatever, and elders were trying to navigate COVID, the idea was that uh, the world standpoint, government standpoint was, well, you can get your church online. Let me kindly tell you something. That is a misunderstanding of the Lord's church. The Lord's church is just not about your, your sermon. The Lord's church isn't even just about the singing. The Lord's church is a community. We are a family, right? We've hit on that this weekend. We are a family. We are of the household of God. And as much as you may not think that you bring anything to the table other than warming up a pew and putting some money in a collection plate, let me tell you something. You bring more to the table in the family of God than you can even recognize. See, because even if you sound like a dog when you sing, I need to hear you sing. 
Even though you may think that I just show up and I'm quiet, nobody cares if I'm there, that's not true. Because there are some individuals who have been in my life that were not upfront leaders, but they were standards in the congregations of which I grew up in. And if sister so-and-so wasn't there or brother so-and-so wasn't there, it brought concern. But when I saw them pushing through discomfort, pushing through health concerns, pushing through family situations, and they were there, they wanted to be a part of the family, it was an encouragement to this young man. You think for one moment, especially, listen to me, those of you who have a little age on you, these young people are watching you. You are having an impact on their faithfulness moving forward, whether you recognize it or not. Continue to be that example. Continue to be that family. I'm grateful that I get the opportunity this weekend to speak on two of my favorite subjects, our individual families and then also the church as a family. And what we've done up to this point in time without spending too much time recapping, uh, the first two lessons, Friday night and Saturday morning, we dealt with the church. We dealt with the fact that we have a common identity from Ephesians chapter 1. As a matter of fact, those of you who were in attendance, I asked the question, who are you? What were the three words that I told you that we saw from Ephesians 1? I am what? Chosen, I am adopted, and I am redeemed. You want to know who Joe Wells is? I am chosen, adopted, and redeemed. I am not just a preacher. I am not just a husband. I'm not just a father. I'm not just whatever you want to label that as. At the end of the day, you want to know when you boil it all down, who am I? I am chosen, adopted, and redeemed. That is my identity. And what's great about the Lord's church is we share that identity. The illustration I used was this, a football team who's a visitor Uh, The visiting team, you put on the same color jersey. You come out of that field house, that visitor's locker room, and all the fans are booing you. And you look around and you see that person's wearing the same jersey, that person's wearing the same jersey. We're in this together. We have each other's back. That's the way the Lord's church is supposed to be. We sing a song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. But do we believe it? Or have some of us gotten entirely too comfortable? You know what's beautiful about hotel rooms are they have chest of drawers. I used to call it Chester drawers and then I found out that's not what it was. It's not Chester. Chest of drawers. You know, when I'm in for a weekend seminar, I don't unpack my suitcase. I live out of my suitcase. If I go for a gospel meeting and I'm there for a week or, you know, most meetings go Wednesday through or Sunday through Wednesday now, um, I might unload my suitcase into the chest of drawers. But if I'm only there temporarily, I'm not going to settle in. The reality is this, it's time for the Lord's church to remember we're only here temporarily. You are part-timers here. You are short-timers here because your home is in heaven. It's probably good that we remember that because when we do, we look around a room like this and we remind ourselves, I'm with a bunch of other people who are not just churchgoers. These are my family. We're related by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we collectively are wearing the same jersey, understanding that we are visitors in our time here on this earth. So we talked about our common identity. We also talked about the, uh, a threat uh, that is attacking the Lord's church. And we talked about how numerous subjects could be addressed in that. But one of the ones that's really key is uh, the church's uniqueness. Uh, we continually have individuals throughout the world that are growing, especially in American culture of post-postmodernism, believing that there is no such thing as the uniqueness of the Lord's church. It's more of a model of, well, there's the church 
And then it's kind of like Baskin Robbins. You got this flavor, that flavor, this flavor, that flavor. And we're all under the umbrella of the church. And so what we did is we looked at the Bible. And I presented two models to you. One model had the church and then all of the denominations outside of the church. And then the other model had the church and all of the denominations within the church. And I asked the question, which is the correct model according to the Bible? And so we looked at it from the standpoint of how many, how many churches did Jesus build? Matthew chapter uh, 16, he built one. We looked at the concept on the day of Pentecost when an individual was coming out of the watery grave of baptism. And they are, if there would have been a reporter there on the bank, they would have asked the question, what denomination did you join today? And guess what the individual on the day of Pentecost would have said? I have no idea what you're talking about because there are no denominations on the day of Pentecost. There's only the church. And so we talked about the uniqueness of the organization of the church, the uniqueness of the design of the church, the beliefs of the church. Ephesians chapter 4, there is only one God. There's only one Lord. There's only one faith. There's only one baptism. There's only one spirit. Those aren't spiritual gymnastics that a preacher has to jump through. You open up Ephesians chapter 4, you read them, and just let them be what they are. And so we talked about one of the biggest attacks is that the Lord's church, even from within at times, we're losing our understanding that this is unique. And then what we did in the next two lessons, we dealt with the family, our personal family. We looked at the idea that your home is not a NASCAR pit stop. That we envision our homes differently. Our homes, I asked you to envision, was a castle to protect the hearts of your spouses and of your children. We looked at the emphasis of the heart in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You want to control behaviors? You're seeing behaviors that you don't like amongst your children, amongst your own selves? The reality is this. The behavior is a symptom of a greater problem. The problem is a heart problem. You reach their heart, you will have their behavior. Your goal is not merely church attendance. Your goal is the heart of your children. You capture the heart. You direct the heart to the Lord. You'll never spend another day worried about whether or not they're going to be in a church service. But if you raise them only to attend church and you never reach their heart, you will spend every day afraid, afraid as an adult that your children will one day fall away. I will tell you this, I, I, I'm not coming at this without a perspective. I'm not coming at this without research. Reach their heart and you won't have to worry about their attendance. Reach their heart and you don't have to worry about their behavior. That's a biblical principle. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 15, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications. But eating with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile a man. It's what comes out of the man that defiles the man. The heart is the seat of who you are. We looked at it also from daily living. I made jokes about it, but the truth is I use humor oftentimes to embrace within my delivery of lessons. And the truth of the matter is this, God didn't make men and women the same. We're not the same in body design, and that's a good thing. I can't believe nobody amen that one. We're not the same in body design. We're not the same in thought process, and we're not the same socially. And my joke was this. I've never heard a situation. Well, I have. Now I have. Andy changed that yesterday, apparently as a joke. But ladies tend to, when they stand up, maybe at a restroom or at a gathering where there's a lot of people, they say, hey, I'm going to go to the powder room. Any of you ladies want to go with me? Until yesterday... The illustrations, I've not heard a man stand up and say, Hey guys, i got to go to the powder room. Any of you boys want to go with me? I don't hear many conversations amongst men. They say, How was your day? The guy says, Good. And he told everything he knew about his day. That was it. 
Ladies, you tend to think a little different. You tend to pursue a little different. And I'm grateful for the design that God gave us and the differences that he placed within us. But if he's going to create us differently, even give punishment to Adam and Eve that are different after they sinned in the Garden of Eden, the reality is this. Is it possible he expects us to function differently within the home? And so we talked about that concept. Not just the idea of protecting the heart, but functioning in the home. And then we talked about priorities. This morning... As we get into this lesson, kind of combining the two together, I want you to consider your family now in the church collectively. Because the beautiful thing about this is, and it's it's kind of supposed to be one of those, you see the two puzzle pieces being put together. It's it's supposed to be where one fits perfectly with the other and and complements the other. I've looked at it this way just because it makes sense to me. Have you ever seen a three-legged race? I don't know when was the last time y'all had a family retreat. I would highly encourage family retreats. And uh, I would encourage parents and children participating in the same events together. Three-legged races are great for marriage retreats too. Uh, You want to talk about a husband and a wife having to put one foot inside of that potato sack together and then function as a unit to accomplish something? There's a lot of communication that goes on. There's a lot of uh, revealing of of relationship characteristics within that. But the reason I use the three-legged race is because you can picture that in your mind. You know the way it works. Two individuals, separate people, put one leg in in the potato sack and they've got to function in unison. If they don't function in unison, there's going to be a falling flat on the face. They're going to struggle. They're going to argue. They're going to complain, and at the end of the day, they're going to reveal a lot about the relationship. Your family and God's family, if I could give you a picture to take with you this morning, it's the idea of a three-legged race where you are your separate entity as a family. The church is its separate entity as the church, but collectively, when you function the way you're supposed to, it's beautiful. Now, here's what I mean by that, and I want to make sure we lay a foundation as we get going. And by doing that, I want to talk about a concept, a concept called jurisdiction. Now, I'm not going to pretend I know everything about jurisdiction, so what I do is I go to the dictionary, and I look up what jurisdiction means in the dictionary. And here's what the word jurisdiction means according to Merriam-Webster's online dictionary. It is the limits or territory within which authority may be exercised. Now that may be a basic uh, definition and you would say, well, okay, that makes sense in a secular concept. But here's another one from a book that's entitled A Weed in the Church, How a Culture of Age Segregation is Harming the Younger Generation, Fragmenting the Family and Dividing the Church. I would recommend at least considering what Scott Brown wrote in this particular book entitled A Weed in the Church. He said this, in a biblical context, jurisdiction means the God-ordained authority to govern according to the word of God, apply its provisions, and exercise its actions. If I could summarize that for you, it would be this. The idea of jurisdiction from a biblical perspective is understanding that God's word sets forth where authority begins and where authority ends. That the reality is that God did create multiple institutions... That were not man-made. They're not man-created. I'm going to go ahead and show them to you here so I'm not pushing a bunch of buttons and you can go ahead and just kind of write down what you want to write down. 
But when I tell you God came up with these institutions, He is the creator of these institutions, when you read through the Bible, you do not read mankind saying, hey, I think we need these things. What you read is God saying in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. The very first time in all of the Bible where God said something wasn't good. Now you've heard the Genesis creation account. At the end of day one, it was good. The end of day two, it was good. The end of day three, and so on and so forth. And at the end of day six, it was very good. God rested on the seventh day. Well, in typical Hebrew fashion of writing, Genesis chapter 2 follows Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 2, you see a more detailed account specifically of the creation of mankind and even more specifically within that, the creation of woman. That's where you're going to find Eve being created, being fashioned from a bone of Adam uh, after Adam was placed to sleep. This woman is presented to Adam and he goes, wow, that's what he said. It's in the Hebrew. Wow. He didn't say that. It's, it's a different Hebrew expression, okay? But either way, you get the point. The idea was this, that God created woman to be the perfect one that it was a likened to that brings into completeness. That's what the word helpmate means, or helpmeet rather, in the Hebrew language. One likened to that brings into completeness. And all of that came about because Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, the first time something was said to not be good was in relation to man being alone. God says, I'm going to fix that. And I'm going to fix that by creating one likened to that brings into completeness and then I'm going to say that let them be fruitful and multiply. That's the concept of family. That's God's idea. God's idea is revealed seeing that in design. You, you, you didn't design yourself. God designed you. In the same sense though, the government was not man's idea. Oh, forms of government are. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot on the news today about monarchies in, in the UK and and you can turn on your television and read about dictatorships and communist governments. And you can even read about uh, uh, democratic republics. Uh, and so the idea is there's various forms of governments. But the reality is government is God's idea. And the reason we know that is in Romans chapter 13, the Bible will lay forth God's intent for the government that it is to, to deal out punishment on those who are evildoers and that it is to protect those who do good. If you don't want to fear the government, don't do evil. And some people say, well, that's in the ideal sense, Joe. And it is. You, you go back to Nazi Germany and tell me that everybody in the, in the, the Holocaust who, who died that they were the ones who just were doing good and the government didn't oppress them. No, we know that governments can oppress, but in the ideal sense, in the ideal sense, the Bible says that the government doesn't bear the sword for nothing. That it bears the sword to deal with those who do evil. Does the government have the authority granted by God, revealed through Scripture, to put to death those who are evildoers? Well, you tell me what it means to bear the sword. Of course it, they do. But here's what you're going to find. Listen now. Anywhere in the Bible does it say that the family bears the sword to deal out punishment on those who are evil. Your head should be shaking like this. Because the jurisdiction of the government is not the same as the home. And the home is not the same as the government. Now the other one that you see up there is the church. The church was God's idea. It's not man's idea. 
I mean, after all, before the foundation of the world, Jesus uh, was going to come to this earth. He was going to redeem mankind. The church was God's idea before you and I ever, ever were born. And so the idea behind the church is you can, can see that Christ is the head of the church, that he is the one who has all authority in the church. We do not have a man who sits anywhere in a, a beautiful castle that, that is the head of the church. That, that's not the way it's designed. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The church is his body. I find it quite interesting, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus would say, all authority has been given unto me under heaven and earth. The idea is all authority belongs to Jesus until that time comes that he surrenders the church back to the Father. And at the end of the day then, the church is to be subjected to Christ. And that's a beautiful illustration that is used regarding the way the wives are supposed to respond to their husbands. And then the love of Christ to the church, the way that the husband is supposed to respond to the wife in Ephesians chapter 5. But I tell you this today, that the church is not man's idea. Now, I recognize that in a day and age where denominationalism has uh, infiltrated the religious thinking, that, that we do have different forms of religion, different beliefs. But I will tell you this, at the end of the day, those are not the church. Those aren't the church that Jesus established. That was purchased with his own blood, Acts chapter 20. The only one that is the church is the one who is built by God, the one that's organized by God, the one that practices authority based upon God. But see, here's an interesting concept too. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that if the elders ever find out that one of the members is practicing evil, that the elders pick up a sword and thrust it through them. It never says that. That's because the church and government have different jurisdictions. But in the same sense, we've got to deal with this other picture. And the other picture is this. When you think about what 1 Corinthians chapter 11 teaches, that Christ is the head of man, head is the, man is the head of woman, you look at the concepts of the responsibilities within the home, and we're going to do that. It's apparent that husbands are to be the spiritual heads of their homes. In some extent, you might say this, they are the shepherds of their families. But then you have the church that also have elders and shepherds. And so my question is this, where does the jurisdiction start and stop for the home? And where does the jurisdiction start and stop for the church? In other words, do elders have unlimited authority or do they only have authority granted to them by God? Do fathers have unlimited authority... Or do they only have authority granted to them by God? Would it be appropriate for a husband who's the authority within his home, he's the head of his home, the spiritual leader of his home, come to the church and say, you don't understand, you will do what I say because I am the head of my house. And you would say, in your house, you are the head of your house. But you cannot leave that jurisdiction and impose that. In the same sense, you wouldn't find a husband, the head of the family, going to the president of the United States and saying, you don't understand, I'm the head of my home. This is what we're going to do. Because the president would say, I'm sorry, but you're not the head of the government. But in the same sense, the question is asked, how does the church respond to the family when it comes to matters of respecting the authority of the family? And how does the family respond to the church in respecting the authority, especially of the leaders. That's the dilemma for today. And I'm just going to leave that hanging for you. Thank you so much. God bless. Y'all have a great... No.
You're like, no, you're not going to leave us hanging on that one. So let's do this. Let's consider something this morning. Let's consider uh, an overview, maybe a simplified concept of why the church exists. What's the purpose of the church concept, right? And so what I want to do is I want to give you three of these that I pray at the end of the day you will allow me uh, to, to say this that through a, an in-depth Bible study, as we continue to study it, there would be multiple subcategories that could fall in underneath each of these. Uh, there could be further discussion about these and even possibly further discussion about other uh, responsibilities, uh, purposes uh, for the church. For instance, in my research, you know, there are individuals who will break it down and they will say, well, the purpose of the church, the ecclesia in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... They gathered together, and obviously they gathered together, and they were taking the, the Lord's Supper. It was in the context of 1 Corinthians 11 of a love feast, so uh, obviously they were communing together. Uh, and so there's something about the community. There's something about observance uh, of the Lord's Supper. Uh, apparently also in Acts chapter 2, they were gathering together, giving attention to the reading of the Word. They were praying together. We can read Ephesians chapter 5 and understanding that there's something about singing to one another uh, and so shouldn't we break all of these down and say the purpose of the church is also about worship to God collectively as a community? And, and I would say, yes, if we were, you know, if my slides, if, if you want 50 slides, I mean, I already got 40 in this one. If you want 50 or more, then yes. So here's what I tried to do. I tried to break them down into kind of headings based upon the scripture. And what you see there is that the Lord's church is so valuable to the faithfulness of you and your families. You know, when you think about 1 Timothy chapter 3, that should say actually verse 15 and not 16. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 say this, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And then here's the description, the pillar of, and support of the truth. Somebody would say, isn't the purpose of the church to preach the word of God? And, and I would say that is definitely one area, but I would also offer this, are we not supposed to preach and teach in other areas outside of the ecclesia, the assembled together on Sunday group of people? But no doubt about it, the pillar and support of truth is there. That's why when you think about the purpose of the church, that's why your elders, they really do have to guard the flock that has been uh, given to them to shepherd over and part of the guarding of the flock, it is the upholding of the truth of God's word. That's why I tell people all the time that, that we need to hold the arms up of our elders. We need to hold the arms up and support them. We need to make sure that we understand the Hebrews chapter 13 concept that, that when they then practice oversight over us, that it is one that they can say it was a joy to do so. And I can tell you, I don't know many elders that exist in continual perpetual states of, this is so fun. You ever notice individuals when we have elders that we say, hey, we're going to appoint some more elders. The number one reason why I hear people, men, men, not wanting to become an elder, and it's just, it is what it is. They'll say, well, the Bible says you have to desire it, and I just don't desire it. Let me ask you a question. Do you desire to get yelled at? Do you desire to have to tell people hard truths about God's Word? Do you desire to lose sleep? Do you desire... 
to put your own family under a microscope? Because that's what your elders have signed up for. And I will kindly tell you this, men, I don't know if it's in this congregation or not. Quit wimping out. Quit being a bunch of wimps when it comes to standing up with a backbone to be spiritual leaders in the church. Now look, I assume that that doesn't happen here. Don't get me wrong. I told the people yesterday, and I'll tell you again today, when I preach and when I deliver seminars, I don't teach, I don't preach to us. I'm preaching to that camera right there of all the people who aren't here, just so you know. Because I know you're not wimps. I, I take for granted who I'm talking to. But can you imagine in some congregations... The number one reason given why they don't want to serve as elders is because they don't desire it. And so again, I echo, quit being wimps. Nobody likes to be yelled at. Nobody likes to have to speak hard truths. Nobody likes to put their family under a microscope. But here's what I know. It's God's design in the church for elders to be a part of the church. It's time we lift the arms up of our elders. They are the ones that shepherd the flock. We're going to look at some of those here in a second with the names of the elders. But either way, I will run out of time if I don't keep moving. And even then, I'm going to run out of time. So you see the other aspects of the church that I have there. Ephesians chapter 4, equipping the, work, or equipping the saints for the work of the church. I firmly believe that the church exists to help us grow in, in maturity. That we actually learn what service is. We have the opportunities to serve within the body of Christ that through service we actually then accomplish what is stated in Hebrews chapter 3, which is we do offer encouragement to one another. Now, all three of these are, are broad concepts, right? So Hebrews chapter 3 is the idea of encourage one another, lest there be any deceitful heart found, and there be no one who falls away. The idea is this. Outside of the church, there are some people who exist, and they say, I don't need a relationship with the church, and I would offer this to you. That's not true. That's not true at all. The further you get away, the less you know the less you know that it hurts, the less you know that you're not receiving the encouragement that you need to walk faithfully so that there's no danger of you falling away. The context within that is the church encouraging one another. And we accomplish that verbally. We accomplish that through serving beside one another. We accomplish that in many ways. Now, look, we could break that down and we could chase all of these rabbits. These are three areas that I want to give you from the scripture as to why the church exists. And I've mentioned about elders I've mentioned about them and the different words. One particular word you can see on the screen before you deals with the word elder. One deals with the word bishop. And then one deals with the word pastors or shepherds. Now I will offer this to you because in 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 through 4, we actually see in this text that those words are all used in the particular, in the same, in the same text. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 1 through 4, the Bible says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a lot that is said, but I bring that text out specifically related to the church because oftentimes the issue is, okay, how do I justify or rectify the seeming conflict between the, the leaders of the local church and then the leaders in the home? 
how do I bring those two concepts together in a manner that is like that three-legged race that's functioning perfectly? And so we look at that and we say, okay, well then, as I understand each of these have their own jurisdiction, uh, then what I need to understand is there's got to be a stopping point to authority on both sides. To authority on both sides. They cannot push either one aside. And so the question then I ask is this, why does the family exist? Well, I give you these three with Scripture. And yes, we probably could have more, just like I said before that. But it is interesting that through specific inspiration here that is given to the Apostle Paul in writing to the church at Ephesus, that the Bible says, beginning with verse 4, Fathers of chapter 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The reality is, and I said this yesterday, I'll say it again, discipleship was always supposed to be mainly rooted at home. You look in the Old Testament, you look in the New Testament, and some individuals say, well, Matthew chapter 28 says, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing and teaching them all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always. Isn't that specific command to the church? And I would offer this to you. Show me any one time where the word church or ecclesia or assembling together of yourself is mentioned in Matthew chapter 28. And you know what you'll find? If you just stick with the Bible, you'll back away and you'll say, I don't see any mention specifically of the assembled church. So what you'll find is this, that's specific instruction to the apostles. That means to me, as I understand the scripture, it applies to all of us. So in other words, do I have a responsibility individually to make disciples? Do I have a responsibility to study the Bible with my neighbors? Do I have a responsibility that as I go, I make disciples? Yes, I have that individual responsibility. Now, here's the reality of the church. The church is not this building. If this building burnt down tomorrow, Graber Road would still be here. The church is the people. So collectively, if individually I had that responsibility, collectively do I have that responsibility? The answer is sure. That's no reason to believe it left. But I want you to understand that sometimes it's specifically stated where some of those responsibilities lie. And in this one, the primary place for discipleship is the home. Now you also see 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4. I thought this was quite interesting, and thus I brought it out, is why does the home exist? What are some specific instructions for the family? And what you're going to find is this, that before widows and those who are uh, elderly within a family unit are to be put on the church roll and taken care of by the church, that the family has responsibility to care for their own. That's a specific statement of why the family exists. 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning with verse 3, Honor widows who are widows indeed. Verse 4, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. You and I, it's not an option. They took care of us. We will take care of them. That's just the truth. That's a God-ordained responsibility for the family. You see also there the one that's demonstrating Christ and the church relationship of which I did go into a bit dealing with the concept of the way that the family uh, is to, un or way that the, the family mirrors and imitates 
the way that the church and Christ relationship is a healthy relationship, I would offer this to you. Oftentimes, the very first training ground for the way the church is to respond to Christ and the way Christ responds to the church is the marriage of mom and dad. It's the very first place that that's taught because it's not taught verbally. It's taught through actions. And that is something that is brought out within the home. Especially at an early age. Those children don't understand everything that's being taught in a, in a sermon. They don't understand everything. They're not processing things the way that you and I process things as an adult. But what they do understand is this. I see the way mommy and daddy have a marriage and the way they respond to one another. And there's something special about that relationship. The reality is this. We could go through many different areas. But as you look at the reason the church exists, you look at the reason the family exists, I have to go back to this because I want to bring it together in a concept of we've got to keep, and I said this in priorities, keep the main thing the main thing. So when you ask yourself what is the goal I would offer to you, the goal is to plant seeds of faithfulness. To plant the Word of God so that the Word of God grows within the life of a child and within the life of the home of each other, spouses, right? Husbands, your responsibility to your spouse, your, your wife. Wife, your responsibility to your husband to encourage each other to faithfulness, to help each other grow in the Lord, but then collectively as parents to help your, your children grow. I made a comment yesterday. Grandparents, you are not done. Generational faithfulness was always in God's plan. You still have a responsibility to try to speak truth into generations that have come after you to teach them the word of God. You can't supplant their parents. But I can tell you this, you can send a card that has scripture in it. You can choose to buy, instead of the newest video game, buy something that's going to help them grow spiritually. You could. You could put that emphasis in your relationship with them and they can put that emphasis in their relationship with you. At the end of the day, though, what we want is faithfulness to grow. And I would offer this to you. That's from the church's standpoint and that's from the home standpoint. So how do you get this picture of a three-legged race where the church and the home work together? They both have to remember what the goal is. But we also both have to remember that we are to complement and work with one another, not against. And so what is faith? I'll go through this real quickly because I just... times. Time is an enemy of preachers. I firmly believe that. Or else our mouths are an enemy. I can't remember which one it is. Anyhow, I show you all that because I draw you back to what is faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? And at the end of the day, that's what I want my children to have. That's what the home congregation where we attend Spring Meadows wants my children to have. I firmly believe that about my elders. I, one of the reasons I firmly believe that is because I've taken the time to get to know my elders and they've taken their time to get to know me. I know that about their Bible class teachers because I've shared meals with their Bible class teachers. We're not just church attenders together. We really are trying to be family together. And that makes a difference because I want my children to have a faith that truly does save. And in, Matthew, in Luke chapter 7, um, you're going to discover, and I'm going to let you read this today or as you process this lesson... Luke chapter 7 is the account where Jesus was invited to the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And he comes in and the Pharisee gives him no water to wash his feet, gives him no greeting or anything along those lines. And then a woman comes in knowing her sinful situation before Jesus. She cannot stop crying onto on his feet and wiping his feet with her hair. And then she anoints his feet with expensive oil. And what Jesus does is he calls to attention what Simon did not do. 
But he calls to attention what this woman did do. And he will say, your faith, in verse 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And my deal is this. I don't want faith that's just a a mental knowledge. My home congregation doesn't want my children or my wife and I to have faith that's merely a mental attesting to something. They want, we want a faith that will transform them. And so together we say, well, what's the goal then? Well, the goal is this. We want to instill within them, within one another. I try to do this even with my elders. I mean, look, it's not, I love my, my elders are very humble men. We can speak truth to one another without it being difficult. It's a beautiful relationship. And the reality is this, that's why I can trust them. And that's why they they trust me. We both want to seek to honor the Savior in our families and within the church, but we also want this concept of it's rooted in gratefulness for what Jesus has done for us. That's a faith that saves. So the question then is, well, how can we put these two puzzle pieces together? Well, very quickly, I'm going to put these up. You're going to have to write them down because those children are coming whether I'm done or not. So here's the deal. How can the church support families? This is a puzzle piece that fits perfectly together. Number one, openly communicate with families. The concept of you just got to trust us and then move on with life, that is not fair in relationship. Can you imagine a husband-wife relationship that existed with only this? Oh, where are we spending our money? Oh, don't you worry, you just trust me. You know, I actually knew a man who was none the wiser because they existed in their marriage that way. She was a church secretary. She was stealing money that was going to missionaries. She was fabricating fake documents, obviously fabrication uh, reports, monthly reports, bank statements. She stole from the church over $200,000. At that point in time, the elders, I mean, they're limited with what they can do. There's a, you steal that much money from a nonprofit, it becomes a federal offense. The husband, you look around and say, why didn't he know? The wife was a CPA. The husband, he was in my wedding. He's just a trusting, he's a good man. But I can tell you this, it's not fair in a relationship for one person to tell the other person, oh, don't you worry where we're spending the money. You just trust me. What, you don't trust me? Why are you asking? Are you asking because you don't trust me? Now, what if we're asking because we're supposed to be a team? What if I'm asking you to communicate what's going on in the children's Bible classes because we're supposed to be a team? What if I'm asking what's going on on youth outings or or with the work of the elderly because we're supposed to be a team? It's not about trust. So how do you deal with that? You communicate. You communicate in advance. Hey, here's what we're doing. You communicate your visions. Here's where we want to go. You have parent meetings. You, you, you meet with the elderly, right? You don't just say, here's what we're doing in our elderly ministry and then walk away from it. No, 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 no. No, no. You reach out to the elderly and you say, hey, here's what we want to accomplish this year. What ideas do y'all have to bring to the table that maybe you want to help us in? Uh, it's same with those of us who are launching children out of our house. You know, we're in a weird stage. Aaron and I, we have four children and we're at that launching them out of our house stage. I don't like it at all. But you know what? There are ministries to help help families like this who are going through the launching out and the uncertainties and the loneliness and dealing with the family that's changing. Family ministries, family ministries are so valuable 
But it's just the simplest communicate. Encourage and equip. Things like you're doing this weekend, having family-based seminars. There are other seminars that are out there. Do you know there are people around this church building that would love a seminar maybe on parenting, maybe on marriage, and maybe you've done those. I assume you have. I take for granted that you have. But equipping is not just, uh, hey, we're going to have a Bible class. It might be that we're going to do something special. Maybe we're going to have a parent retreat, a family retreat. Maybe we're going to bring in a guy who's studied or uh, we're going to provide resources in our church library on parenting or uh, transition in life. Widows, you know, my mother, I told you yesterday, my mother's a, a young widow. Dad died almost four years ago. He was 64. Mom's now 65. Uh, that was a, a long time, you know, to be a widow, a long time if she chooses to stay a widow. But nobody teaches you how to do that. Nobody, we've had conversations with my mom. She says, I don't want to take my wedding ring off. And I tell mom, I said, mom, there's no rule that says when you take your wedding ring off or if you ever take your wedding ring off. But there are widows who are struggling through things and the church could walk with families through that. I need to make sure you know family ministry is not just for young people. I once actually wrote a... Uh, a family minister description, like if you were going to hire a family minister, the eldership asked me to write the, uh, the job description. I thought, wow, this is impressive. You know, that, I guess they thought I was the guy. They said, we want you to write your own description. We'll see about it and we'll make some changes along the way. And one of the things that really stands out about family ministry is you're talking about ministering to all families. So make sure you keep this in context, right? Communicate with all. Encourage and equip all. Involve all. Reach out. There are some people who are going to struggle and they're never going to tell you about it. That's why one of the best things that I've seen elderships do is uh, from time to time, two elders, during about, and it was just during Bible class and that was just what they chose to do, they would meet with a family during Bible class. And then two other elders would meet with another family and they went through the entire congregation Meeting with family units. How is it going? What can we do to help? Do you have concerns? Do you have recommendations? And you know what I saw through that process? Those elders became more endeared by those brethren. And you know what those elders showed those brethren? That we value you and we want to shepherd you in a loving manner that's according to the will of God. A three-legged race that works well. All right, let me show you these, and then those kids are chomping at the bit. Here we go. How can families support the church? Number one, you are not pew sitters. You need to make a commitment to the Lord's church. Our elders ask us when we want to place membership where we attend, they asked us and they ask every family to commit to one hour of service outside of the local assembly every week. They didn't care how you spent it. If you're spending that sitting with an elderly couple, spending it serving soup at a kitchen, they just said that in order to be here, you need to understand up front the expectations. Spring Meadows is not a place you just show up on Sundays and sit. Spring Meadows is an active body, and we're asking you to commit. You want to talk about as the head of the family sitting there with your family, and you're looking at them in the eye going, okay, we're going to commit to that, and your children are watching you, and your wife is watching you. It's kind of some, something called accountability. But the reality is this, you need to understand that the Bible teaches 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, that we are a body and we all don't serve the same purpose. Some are feet, some are eyes, some are hands. Somebody's got to be the pinky toe and somebody even has to be the nose hair of the church of, of, of God. 
You think it's not important? Take all your nose hair out and then just breathe in a bunch of dusty air. See, tell, you, tell your lungs how important your nose hair is. The reality is this, there is no insignificant part in the body of Christ. That's why I'm telling you, you must make a commitment. Also, you must submit. I know that's a free willing submitting. Uh, I can tell you though, the Bible talks about in Hebrews chapter 13, your responsibility to your elders. The reality is this, you've got to submit if you're going to be pleasing to God. Now, the, the hard part is, and I'm not saying it's here, but in some situations people have asked me before, how do you submit if the elders are lording it over people? Well, let's talk about lording it over. I don't have time now, but let's talk about lording it. You know, there are some teenagers who believe their dad's lording it over it too when they tell them to turn off the video game. And then there are some dads who lord it over when they talk degradingly and push them aside and don't listen to their concerns. That is lording. So the idea is this, we need to make sure it is lording and just not you not getting your way. If it is lording over, then that's a sin issue. And the Bible talks about how you address sin with elderships. It's not supposed to be just a haphazard thing. It's very, very uh, sensitive. I would offer these to you as well. Give to the local work. Give to the local work. This building, you have an eldership that's decided to have a building that decides to support missionaries, that decides to have local preachers and the reality is this, they have that wisdom, they have that oversight, they have that jurisdiction to make those decisions. But when you give, giving to the local church is not merely to pay the bills. It's a submission that you have to God. It's a reliance upon God. Give. Why? Because it shows priority. And then I would say this, they will know that you are Christians by what? By your love. You have an obligation to support the church, not just by showing up, but by love. And I would offer that that's important too. Let's go to our Father in prayer. I have gone over my time. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the church. Thank you for the family. And Lord, as we strive to support one another in this illustration of a three-legged race, I pray that we would appreciate the separateness, the jurisdiction that each has, but that we would also appreciate the common goal that we strive for. Lord, thank you. Thank you for our elders who lead us, who sacrifice so much. Thank you for their wives. Thank you for the deacons who put in countless hours of service. Thank you for their wives and family. Thank you for our ministers who uh, have devoted their life to, to preaching your word and to serving other people. Thank you for the members, Lord, who choose to put their, their gifts and their talents to work for you and to benefit for the common good. And we pray for the church, Lord, not just here, but throughout America, throughout the world. Dearly Father, thank you for families. I'm grateful for fathers who will step up and lead. I'm grateful for fathers who will pick up your word and will teach it to their families. I'm grateful for mothers, Lord, who understand that the position that she holds within the family is not a subservient position. It's not a second class. It is so valuable to the development of children and to the faithfulness of her husband. And I pray, Lord, that my sisters here online, throughout America, throughout the world, would understand that no matter what culture says, culture does not dictate their value. Thank you for children, Lord, with hearts to learn, with energy to, to perform as service acts. And, and Lord, with the excitement of what the future holds, I'm just grateful for the family and every one of its entireties. Lord, thank you for those who have walked roads, those who are grandparents, those who continue to mentor, those who bring experience to the table for their own sons and daughters and for their grandchildren. And Lord, thank you for the extended families of aunts and uncles and cousins who, who support and offer tradition. And Lord, we pray that we can be a strength within that. But Lord, we pray today collectively that we will be together what you've called us to be. Help us to appreciate the task, the gravity of the task, to appreciate 
what Satan is trying to do. And Lord, help us to, to make sure that in all things we're allowing your word to dictate the way that the church and the home function together. Lord, thank you for this body of believers. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much.